Hello there and a warm welcome to our podcast listeners. Um, welcome to another edition of PageCast. Today I'm with my sister Mary Watson, who is a writer and author. Um, her first book, Moss, won the Kane Prize, which uh, we as South Africans and her family were very proud about. Her second book uh, was The Cutting Room, and then she put out The Rain Hunt, The Wicker Light, and today we're talking about her latest book, um, The Riveting Blood to Poison. Okay, so I'm Mary Watson, and I'm delighted to be here chatting about Blood to Poison with my sister, Joy Watson. Joy is a feminist researcher, the co-editor of Nasty Women Talk Back, a contributor to The Daily Maverick and the author of The Other Me, which is quite brilliant, in my opinion. But I also know Joy as my big sister, the one who masterminded many of our wildly imaginative games when we were children, who was co-founder of the J&M Library, subscriber <laughs> one, and who rescued my drowning Barbie doll when she was swept out into choppy waters. Now, admittedly, Joy was also the one who threw the doll into said choppy waters. Joy has one daughter, two rescue dogs, and the best, most infectious piggy laugh. I'm going to try and not do the piggy laugh so we don't <laughs> overwhelm listeners. Um, yeah, I, I was thinking about the Jam M Library recently, about how we we had that whole system and how we coded our, our books as 001002 and how we would pull out a little table in front of our bedroom door um, and tell our friends to come and take books from our library. And I was thinking about the flaw in that system, which is that we never got any books back. We just kind of... Yeah, Jay, the thing is, I don't think we liked lending out the books anyway. So we were like a, it was a flawed premise at, at the beginning because it was like you didn't really want to lend them out. Um, but I, I think it speaks to an, an early love for books. So yeah. I'm, I'm very, I'm very happy and thankful to Jonathan Ball for organising this opportunity to be in conversation. Um, I must say that I would have been even more thrilled to have been able to have this conversation in person. So maybe just to hint to other podcasters with inflated line pockets. Well, I don't I don't want to overcommit or make any promises, but when Mary and I are together, we're quite adept in our in our conversations at finding solutions. Um, so we could potentially make inroads into resolving issues like world peace and climate change. Isn't that true, Mary? Will you verify this for the investors in our sister reunion? What are the legal implications of that? <laughs> <laughs> now, just agree to the marketing. Okay, everything that she said, which is basically my standard response when I was a child, everything that she Sign said. up, yeah. <laughs> so I, I now have read Blood to Poison uh, in manuscript form and, and uh, it was my second time reading it as a book. And uh, truly, this is unbiased. <laughs> um, it's a riveting, fast-paced read. It has many feel-good feel moments, um, there's a bit of adventure, love, it's a bit of a thriller with a twist, and it's written with incredible humour and, and technique that I think comes with many years of practice. Without giving away any spoilers, Mary, can you just tell us a bit about what the book is about, so a sort of short overview? Okay, so the book Blood to Poison is the story of Savannah, who is cursed to die young. It's a curse that dates back centuries to an enslaved ancestor, Hela. One of the side effects of the curse is that Savannah is brimming with a barely controlled fury. And in trying to break the curse and save a life, Savannah stumbles across warring factions of witches 
and some of them will do anything to get what they want. Now, Mary, would it be a fair assessment to make to say that you've always been interested in stories that implode the imagination, um, the existence of parallel alternative worlds, notions of magic? I mean, from the days that we, um, when you enacted the burning of your doll uh, at a stake. You mean me? Excuse me, there were three of us in that. <laughs> it was not only me who burnt the doll witch at the stake. <laughs> Okay. Let's just say in fact, there was one mastermind behind that whole thing. There was some people gathered around a stake at which dolls were burnt and some dancing in a circle. Um, but what I'd like to talk a bit about is how stories are often propelled by something in our lived reality. Uh, so tell us a bit about where the inspiration for the book comes from. Where, where did, you know, what, what sparked the idea for this book? Okay, so there's several things that sparked the idea, but I think um, one of the main um, sources of inspiration was the story of the cursed ring in our family. And it's a story that's fascinated me ever since I was a child. I think it's fascinated you too as well, hasn't it? Mm. Yeah. So basically, um, my aunt died very tragically when she was young. I think she was at about 21. And she was one of those magnetic, um, charming women, you know, the kind who lit up a room when she entered it. And she died before I was born, but whenever I heard my mother or my grandmother or aunts or uncles talk about her, I always heard the sorrow and the loss in their voices. Um, and when I first held this ring, when I was about, you know, late teens, early 20s, it immediately brought home to me this profound loss that I only ever intuited before. And I wanted to capture that, that feeling of a family that's gathered together and bonded through an empowerful emotion and through the story of a curse. Mm -hmm. So there were other factors that, but before I get into that, Joy, do you remember the story? I mean, like, what are your impressions of that? Yeah, in fact, you know, it, it's, and I think fueled partly by rereading your book in this last week. I I went to bed one night just really caught up in that history, in the, the telling and the retelling of that story. And... Um, Particularly, you know, sort of tapping into as I, as I as I uh, was in bed at night, tapping into the sense of sadness and rage at the loss of this young life, a woman who you know was twenty one, and how you know we're living in a context where mental health is such such a, a real issue. Um, my daughter's already lost a friend in last week who was in matric with her, who who took. Um, their life. And I was thinking as I went to bed about the one thing that sort of passes down that I take from that um, and, and, and in connecting her sense of inability to cope to my moments of my inability to cope to my daughter's moments to, of her inability to cope, that she's given us something really special. You know, here is the story of this person who took her life and it's sort of in her name that mm. I remember in moments of intense brokenness how she sort of invokes this a sense and a will to carry on and a power and a in her name, you know, how how do we how do we act out um on the one hand I was thinking rage when others hurt us because she was hurt by somebody. Um, how do we channel um, our emotions in ways where we're kind and gentle to ourselves? I think that, 
you know, the link between her story and the book, I, I, it really sort of um, connected me more to this, the sense of, of connection to those who've come before. It's very much also that sense of intergenerational trauma, which is something that the book really um, exactly. is, is, is something that's very much at the heart of the book, this idea of trauma, that 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 kind of subterranean trauma that, you know, gets passed on, whether we like it or not, like it's there, it's kind of almost in the DNA, in the genetics, and it, it gets passed on. And it goes back not only to, you know, the generation behind us, but the generations behind that as well, and then behind them, and all the way into the distant mists where we don't know who, you know, who the, who the individual players are anymore. But there is that sense of trauma, and especially in a country like South Africa, where there is so much traumatic history that you do get that sense of that trauma that continuing into the present. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sharing this as because I, I have permission to, part of it is my own story, part of it is my, my daughter's. But... Um, I'm doing it, you know, because more and more I'm wanting to name mental health issues because I lost uh, a friend who took her life two years ago. So the story of my aunt is that she she took her life. When I was 13, I tried to take my life. My daughters tried to take her life. So there is this sort of intergenerational thing that happens. And I remember particularly waking up um, with our, my granny, so the mom of my aunt, sitting by my bedside and I'm my aunt's namesake, um, Joy. And she was sobbing, saying, this can't be happening again. And so on that note, Mary, I want to dive into what you've just opened there, the, you know, the story about, and particularly in the context of slavery, of, of the context of societal oppression and systemic um, injustice, the link between um, oppression and historical rage between the injustices of the past and the present, connecting intergenerational trauma to that, and the emotional connection that is passed down through the generations, how suffering in particular can be encoded in our DNA. Um, and how, you know, I'm wanting to link this to storytelling and folklore as a way of connecting us to those who have gone before and as a way of leaving a legacy for those who are to come. Um, you know, what do you think, firstly, is the role of storytelling in dealing with this intergenerational trauma? And secondly, do you think that in a context such as ours in the South African story, that the ancestors, those who have gone before, demand of us that we remember their stories? Hmm, that's an, such a big and interesting question. So it's kind of funny because I think, like I've always been, drawn to the idea of the ancestors of these people who've gone before and I think also kind of when writing this book in in doing in making this book I've definitely kind of sat down you know meditated is that the word um presented to the ancestors to Auntie Joy to and kind of making it okay that I was telling the story kind of if that makes sense um yeah. and um just knowing that it's kind of an open connection that I was that I was making while I was writing it, that they, it's not just me sitting in a room in a different country writing a, a story, but it's actually kind of channeling, is that the word? Yeah. Um, and, and accessing that history. So, like, okay, fun fact, this was meant to be a fun book, 
Okay, so I was going to write a book it's about that it's magical discovery, which is a bit of romance. And then I realized that Savannah was cursed to be angry. So, okay, a bit less fun, but let's keep going. And then I realized that the anger was linked to an enslaved ancestor. And I was like, we're veering away from the funnier Mary. But this history is so important to me and I wanted to engage with it and look at it head on. So I did a lot of research. I looked again at the appalling conditions that the enslaved endured. And when I last visited Cape Town, Joy, her daughter and I went to the slave lodge and it was such a powerful experience walking through that building and getting a real sense of the reality that I was writing about. And in some ways, it was a madness to take on such a serious topic and then weave it into a book that's primarily there to be enjoyed. And it really, really wasn't easy. I had to do quite a lot of revising in order to make it authentic, sensitive and just, you know, hit all the right notes. And then since then, I've had readers from different countries who've had little sense of our history getting in touch with me and saying that we'd never thought about this before. And that means a lot to me to be able to share this history with readers who've never encountered it before. You know, decades ago in the olden days, as my children so rudely call it, when I first, <laughs> when I first started writing, I read and mostly wrote, um, I suppose, literary fiction. My writing was about ideas, about mood, about beautiful language. But in recent years, I've become more interested in popular fiction because I think it's closer to storytelling with its mm -hmm. emphasis on plot and with events unfolding rather than ideas. And I'm fascinated by the ins and outs of stories, how they work, the function of stories in society. So all this to say that I think that the form and style of this book is for me um, consciously treading like a parallel path to a more ancient craft of storytelling, if that doesn't sound too poncy and one which draws into, which draws the past and our history into the present. It's a way of keeping those stories alive. It's a way of reminding us to remember. And, I, you know, I think that your book does that with tremendous skill that, you know, on the one hand, and, and I'm, I'm really with you in, in reading, uh, so, so part of what, what I've been thinking about is how to use writing in, in my kind of role as a researcher how to use writing in accessible ways as a as a, a conduit for social transformation you know which is ultimately kind of long term but how do you get people thinking about things um as an investment in a in a trajectory a long-term trajectory for for transforming societies for the better and so i think that what i what i while reading your book what i thought that you did with tremendous skill was to capture um, an accessible, delightful, funny read that also at the same time deals with some very serious issues. And may I say, dare I, well, you know, it's not a political book, that there's some political issues that, that are very intricately woven into the thread of the story so that, you know, it, it, the book almost begs you to, to think about things while at being this this read that is just escapist and enjoyable. So I wanted to also talk a bit about Savannah as as a character. And before I go there, I was just wondering about one thing, and this is a little bit of a, um, a digression moment. Um, but um, it struck me that Savannah, as she kind of comes into her magic and discovers it and finds its power, the moments when she sort of loses consciousness when a, a fainting spell of sorts falls to the ground. And maybe I was just wondering, you know, there were times in your um, 
past at primary school where you fainted several times? Were you coming into magic? Do you want to tell us a bit about what happened there when you were to be brought home oh by the principal? God, I never made that connection. So, I mean, I'm an exceptionally fainty person. Like, I am a fainter. I have been, uh, like, anemic, so I've fainted. I remember fainting a lot, especially in my late teens. Like, like mommy would always find me, like, lying in the bathroom. It's like, oh, God, there she goes again. Um, because I just faint a lot. And then, um, but the, the more sort of publicly humiliating fainting was when I was at school and I had a kind of real inability um, to handle certain kinds of subjects. And basically, as soon as content got into medical matters, I would faint. So, but yeah. So, was that coming into power? Hopefully. Like, maybe that is why I am who I am. I've, every time I fainted, I've come into my magic. So, last night I, I went to pick Sadie up and she was saying, she's on this whole rant about how important it is to give blood and she's doing it. And she's like, and you really have to, mom. It's the right thing to do. <laughs> you have to stop talking to me I'm gonna faint please just stop and she's like I don't care about your sensibilities like you have to do what's right and it's like go tell Mary go and tell Mary and then I will go so um coming back to Savannah as a character she's she's so many things you know there's the juxtapositioning of being both brave and strong but also incredibly vulnerable she's sassy she's irreverent but also desperately wanting to fit in and belong um and then, you know, what I found really compelling was that she realizes that she has to confront the story of her own anger in order to break the curse. And I wanted you to talk a bit to us about that anger as a theme in the book, the way in which the book engages with this in constructive ways to show that anger is sometimes a very necessary um, emotion, that, that especially so for women, and dare I say, especially so for black women. And we've been socialized in, you know, constructions of femininity on that this is not, anger is not a good a good way to be a woman. So I want to, ex to explore both, you know, how you use anger literally and as a metaphor in the book, um, but just in claiming agency in, in being a whole person. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, so anger is a very kind of central sort of mood theme of the book. And I, I suppose it came from my own experience. You know, I started planning this book in 2018 and I was writing it in 2019. And every time I turned on the news, some politician was lying and getting away with it. Like the climate is in crisis. There was collective fury in South Africa about violence against women. And there's a, so much wrong with the world that um, it felt like Anger was a sane response to an insane world. Um, and at the time I was exploring the story of a girl who was cursed to be angry by day and then regretful by night. And then at some point, like it just kind of clicked. Like she's not cursed to be um, nasty, she's cursed to be angry. So, um, so that started, you know, getting me thinking about anger, write, reading about anger and just kind of really kind of reflecting on, on what anger is. And often when women show emotion, they dismiss as hysterical. And then add race to it and it becomes even more complicated. And there is so much to be angry about. But black anger particularly is weaponized. It's another negative trope. We've all heard of the angry mm. black woman and, and, and how easily that's dismissed. So I wanted to delve into the idea of justified anger here. And I wanted to explore the idea of anger as a weapon and question how we can take anger and use it without hurting ourselves, without burning anything to the ground and without becoming entrapped by it. Mm. 
I mean, and I, I really appreciated that in, in the book. I mean, I, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the disruption of the tropes of what it means to be, um, what womanhood means. And, 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 and so, you know, it, it, I'm just thinking of another example that we, when we invoke, uh, particularly in Women's Month as it is now, in, in our kind of historical context, the slogan, which is an important historical slogan, you strike a woman, you strike a rock. Um, and how, in some ways, while, you know, while we honor uh, that slogan coming from the women who have gone before, how we also are in a space where, yes, sometimes invoking the, that, that kind of thinking is useful, but um, it's also problematic that, you know, this, this notion of women as rocks and mm. you strike us, you strike a rock, and so we strongly will deal with everything. It's a disruption of tropes is, 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 is important. And I love that, you know, that, that Savannah becomes a signifier of that, um, you know, her her language in the book, um, the, you know, her voice, um, her agency is just, it's just beautifully executed. Um, and I mean, and you write about the South African context with all the fury and the rage and how we see this played out on a daily basis. And so, you know, it's, it's, I think it's important to think about where our anger is well placed and what are the constructive ways in which we act it out. Um, is the most, sorry, I, yes. sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's just that I suppose the, the anger most damages the person who feels it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I and I've been thinking that a lot in having recently lost our dad and the anger that he carried. You know, he was many things, but he was also a very angry man. He was angry that About systemic, yes, yeah, and 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 I think that one of the biggest angers he carried was that he knew that he had tremendous potential. That he was an intelligent man. He was a a, a, a person who uh, was able to read widely, to think uh, in analytical ways, his cognitive view of the world was interesting. As well, like, you know, within the constraints of, of, of apartheid, he managed to set up successful businesses, you know, he, he did things, he got things done, and imagine what he would have been able to do if his life hadn't been walled in. Exactly, and this his sense of that limitation, and which he actually named as, you know, the, the denial of an, of an opportunity of being able to go to university and study, um, and that fueled that sort of subliminal and sometimes overt anger. Mm. Um, and we've not really done very well as a society, I think, in in finding conduits for, for dealing with that anger. I mean, we've been, been thinking a lot about the notion of restorative social justice and what that means. What does it look like, especially in a context where the Truth and Reconciliation Commission process has failed us horribly? But so, so moving from that to talk a bit again about um, landscape and place in a book, and your book, you know, it's 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 it's. I so appreciate the fact that it's set here in this country, but also in your city where you come from in Cape Town, um, and I found the portrayal of Cape Town in the book very power powerful. It brought to the fore Cape Town in all its complexity its beauty, the natural beauty, but also its many challenges, you know, the, the sort of cultural ethos um, that this is made alive and palpable in the book. Um, 
you know, as as Savannah moves between different parts of the city, you you have that the the sense of the the disjuncture between the haves and the have-nots. Um, you get the the cultural nuances and the rich dialect that comes out in the in the dialogue. Um, and I think you know while this book is is universal that it it could appeals to audiences everywhere, but particularly for us here from this city, it's a thing of pride. Can can you tell us a bit about how you set out to portray the city in this book and and you know the way it's done in such very interesting ways? I remember when I was in the very early stages of writing it, I was really kind of struggling to get into into it and. I mean, that's kind of normal in some ways, I always do. I remember talking to one of my neighbours and said I was really like finding it hard to kind of occupy this book. And then she said to me, that's because you're not there. And I realised that a lot of, you know, the not writing parts of writing is when you go outside and just step into the outside and kind of soak up the landscape, absorb. So it's kind of easier for me to write a book set in Ireland because I go outside and I look at the sky and, and you know, the landscape, the fields and the hedgerows and whatever. And I kind of draw on those things and they kind of feed the creative impulse. So when you don't have that kind of consciously feeding you, you need to be finding it in other ways, I suppose. And um, But it did happen that as I increasingly started writing the book, I find I found that connection to Cape Town again. And, and, you know, it's kind of like when you're mining something and there's this thread of something. And once I found that thread, it just started becoming alive to me and, and reconnecting me to the place. And um, I wrote this book like in 2019 and I wasn't able to get back in 2019. But then in 2020, I was revising it. And, you know, I did quite a lot of revisions, so not quite a lot of rewriting and revising. And that was during, obviously, the pandemic and lockdown and all of that. And I wasn't able to come back. And there was a lot to be said for revisiting this landscape and kind of really putting the colour into the landscape when mm. I could only access my home city, the place that I, you know, fiercely miss constantly um, through my imagination. So basically it became, writing this book became a kind of way of revisiting a place that I really, really long to be in, um, you know, that's deeply embedded in my bones that I miss all the time. And, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking back to when you were last year in um, November 2021. And we did that sort of uh, trip down memory lane where we went to historical places of significance. So well, the day that I was with you and we went to Devatakant, the yeah. place where our grandmother's family was displaced from um, in when group, the group areas act came into effect. And then your uh, trip as well to our family home in Grossi Park. Um, and, and yeah, and the, 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 that trip in itself, in fact, embodies the, uh, the kind of spatial inequality, the complexity of Cape Town, how, you, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, it, it's so many things. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about what it felt like to go on that, that trip down memory lane, um, sites of, of memory for us? Yeah, just before that, though, it just it's funny that, like, when I was writing the book, because I was writing it from here, the places of the book, I couldn't, I didn't really want to set it in in areas that I wasn't familiar with. So the locations of the book are all places that I was really familiar with. So kind of, um, you know, um, Savannah's first home is kind of the cusp of um, Salt Hill Observatory where I lived myself. So basically, um, and then there's some of it kind of set towards Cape Flats, which is kind of where mm-hmm. our grandmother lived. And then, you know, our parents, when they first started out, lived in Manenberg. So it was all very much um, 
and then we obviously grew up in Karate Park. There was deeper over in southern suburbs. So this all very much part of um, my own experience. And it was really drawing on my own memory and my own sense of history in reconstructing that space. Um, but yeah, it was amazing going through that space. And you really do, I mean, there's a line in the book um, about, you know, in this country, um, beauty is often the mise-en-scene for trauma. And it really is that where you have such an incredibly beautiful place. I mean, out of all the places I've been in the world, Cape Town is up there as one of the most beautiful and um, all the terrible and difficult things that that happen, you know, within this beauty. And it's it's this constant two face faces of the city where it's beautiful and it's ugly and it's um, rich and it's poor. And it's it's just all these contradictions that kind of get brought into this really complicated, thriving, vibrant, you know, pulsing, beautiful city. Exactly. I mean, you you capture that so adequately, and you know, I mean, I think that in ways that are more pronounced, yeah, than in in a city, for example, like like Joburg. I mean, it's a problem that cuts across the country, but it's more pronounced here. Yeah, the Gini inefficient, uh, you know, the, that high Gini, um, or what is the terminology? I can't even get it right now. But basically, the measurement um, of the gap between the inequality, yeah, were, um, yeah, the and. And the ways in which we've done, not done as well as a city like Johannesburg in, in reintegrating and um, especially from the perspective of spatial inequality. It's kind of like almost encoded in, in the geography of the landscape in some ways, um, the mountain cutting through. Have you seen those um, pictures of South Africa, of Cape Town, those kind of aerial pictures where you look at kind of the area close to the mountain and it's all green and beautiful and then you kind of look there's almost this line that kind of like you, then you see the, the, the kind of um, areas that are afflicted by poverty and they're dry and it's just like you're looking at it's like basically two different countries almost when you're looking at these um, areas side by side. The tale of two stark difference. The tale of two cities. Um, I mean I've been thinking a lot about about um, and I don't, I don't quite have the words for this. So this is going to sound horribly inadequate. But the um, the way you know, when you when you have sort of uh, say a family, it's a co connection of individual values of the persons who make up that family. So it forms a collective. Um, then you have different families making up a community, and that the kind of dominant um, uh, values become the, the a sense of the community values and you know you elevate that up to the level of society and so the 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 sort of um layer of cape town and the ethos of the city is a very very complex one in that in some ways you know some of the the, the debates around issues of race and integration and diversity are just we've made a lot less progress here. Um, but what I what I do appreciate about your book is that you know you capture some of the community ethos. For example, like I, I look at you know I'm thinking about um, the aunties and how. Oh, yeah. The aunties. <laughs> the, these Cape Flats aunties, they're real, right? These are, yeah. we have these aunties and, and how they find the beauty in the ordinary and the, 
you know, I'm thinking in particular, so these aunties aren't necessarily uh, rolling in resources and money, but I'm thinking particularly, and I'm just going to see if I can find it, towards the very end of the book, where um, the aunties are all gathered together and things have kind of been resolved and they're all in the bedroom. So Savannah goes to the bedroom and all the, the, the aunties are there and they're sort of, you know, trying to spur on the romance between her and someone else. And um, so Auntie Nazimba says, I've just found it. Savannah, you should, you should have told us, Auntie Nazimba chides. Small thing like you carrying such a heavy burden. She had decks to help. The bad boy can carry my burdens anytime. Auntie Dottie raises an eyebrow. No, Harrison groans. Stop. You're a fuck, Dot. Must you always, Titi says, irritated. And then we're all laughing. And this is such, this is this could be like a soundbite. <laughs> Our family, right? I know, and like as opposed, like I heard the aunties in my head as I was writing it. You know, it's like that bit where, you know, um, you know, when they're like when they're saying to her, like you must eat and things like that. And um, there's there's one. I was visiting um Canada, and I ran into some cousins of ours there. We went to visit some cousins, and honestly, I swear to God, like one of the aunties at the end. It was like a grown-ass woman of 40-something. She pulls me into her arms and she says, pretty girl. And I'm like, yes, these are the aunties. Because they make you feel warm and safe and loved. And oh, my God, like every bit of that love and safety and that I've ever felt, I'm kind of in invested into the aunties in, in this book. It's like a it's like a, a blanket being wrapped it around is. you. In fact, I mean, do you remember going to Auntie Mavis's? I mean, they would always say, "These two girls, they eat like birds." I mean, these <laughs> would say, "These vulture birds." <laughs> I remember every time we go, like they'd say to us, "You must cover your chest." <laughs> you must cover your chest. Oh my God, we're getting old because now I look at Zadie, and that's what I say. Please can you put your chest and not for, like because I'm feminist, it's not because you know she's going up and putting her body on display, it's because I get cold looking at her. And look I think they would get cold looking at me. Like it's they'd look at me and like their lungs would like get like ice in them because it just made them cold. So really tell us a bit about why is it that this book about witches and magic felt so powerful for me in claiming agency that the, you know, that's a wonderful tale about coming into one's sense of self, the story. Um, so the claiming of power in both in, you know, in metaphoric ways. Um, can you talk to us a bit about that? I think witches have always been a symbol of female empowerment. And mm. I think that it's one of the reasons why it's become so popular again. And with things like tarot cards and crystals and spells becoming more mainstream than they were a decade or two ago. And I think it's a way to conceptualize coming into one's own power. Um, and it doesn't have to be magical power, but just that, that strong sense of self of, of what you're able to do in the world. And it also feels to me like this idea of witches to me feels like kind of inner wildness, a kind of inner magic, a kind of mystery within oneself. And mm -hmm. I always like to think about the witch inside. And that's, you know, I call I call her the witch inside, the part of me that's always been a sense attuned to a sense of magic in the world. And I think that sometimes yes. we get distracted by jobs and by bills and by babies and by Twitter, and we lose touch with that witch inside. And I think that there is something so very freeing about making contact with the witch inside. 
Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm still sort of in the aftermath of the, the magic of just having finished the book again. And last night I went out to take um, the dogs for the nightly constitutionals and it was dark outside. And I was like, I'm walking down the road with my jackals and the world is magical and I'm a witch. And <laughs> Exactly. That's exactly the message I wanted you to take from the book. Yeah. I have to mend I'm thinking that, you know, I have an opportunity to sneak in a bonus question here, which is, I'm, I'm going to point out it's not fueled by my own interest. Um, but seeing as how you actually never told me, um, and I was brief to ask questions that are pertinent and relevant to the book, uh, and I'm just trying to do my job here. Ex Savannah experiences her first kiss in the book. How many people have you kissed? Are there any questions <laughs> that you might make to the literary public? so that they are better able to engage with your work. Um, also, would you like to maybe do a series of ongoing conversations where I get to ask you questions? Um, it's just an idea to use it. Though. <laughs> okay, so now I don't remember is the answer to your question. <laughs> We've lost count. Um, yeah, no, no idea. And as to the second part, I like if we can turn the tables and I get to ask you questions as well, no. then I'm keen. <laughs> No, I was given the question asking job. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was actually having this weird conversation with my children the other day about labeling and labeling people and how often we end up having um roles for everybody. So like this one is the scatty one, this one is the kind one, this one is the whatever one. And and they wanted to know in our family what, what everybody's role was. And I was like, well, I don't know. And like, and part of the conversation was about the limitations of these of these of these labels. And then they said, "Well, what does Joy call you?" And I said, "Okay, Joy calls me Bossy." And then I said, "Well, what do you <laughs> what do you call Joy?" And I said, "Well, I call Joy Bossy." And then they said, "Well, what do you call Auntie Lynn?" And I said, "Well, we call Auntie Lynn Bossy too." And I was like, "Oh God, we're all Bossy." And then they said, "Auntie Des, is she Bossy?" And it's like, "Yeah, Auntie Des can be Bossy too." So like, we're all basically Bossy. <laughs> This is very true, and um, yeah, I mean, bossy for me, I suppose I might be a little bit law scope as well, especially since I went to moderate a session at a university yesterday with my um, dress tucked into my panties, and yeah. <laughs> no one's law scope prize, that's for sure. <laughs> you win. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of this um, conversation and like I'm just again putting it out there to potential investors who might want to <laughs> have us come together and solve world problems. Thank you very much for your time. Thank Mary. you. Thanks very much. It was fun chatting um, blood to poison with you. It's lovely.